0: Pharaoh as this mirror that reflects back to us and shows us what's in us, shows us that there is a battle that's raging between Pharaoh and Yahweh, and that's a picture of the battle that rages between Yahweh, the Lord, and every person. The battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh can be summarized as a battle for sovereignty. Who is the true and rightful king? Who had the power over everything? Who was in control? Whose rule and authority was supreme? Those were the questions that confronted Pharaoh. Those are the same questions that confront every single person. Fallen man is in a battle for sovereignty. And in our sinful hearts, we want to be on the throne. We want to have the power... We want to be in control. We want our rule and reign to be supreme over everything and over everyone. And so it brings us to a crucial question, a crucial question that everyone must answer, a crucial question that even children can understand. The question is this Who is king? Who is it that has rule over your life? Who is sovereign in your life? Whether you recognize it or not, someone is king, someone is ruling, someone is sovereign. And for many people, that person is themselves. Or to put it another way, for many, they are the king the one ruling, the one in control. They are the one with the power. They are the sovereign one. And any attack on their sovereignty is met with a battle and a fight. So if you're looking in a mirror this morning and see Pharaoh, what is it that you see? You see that Pharaoh is not sovereign and therefore you, like Pharaoh, are not sovereign either. This battle is seen in many applications in your own life. Maybe you don't even recognize it. Think about a few of these with me maybe for a moment. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? worried? Why are you angry? Why are you bitter? Why are you resentful? Why are you discouraged? Why are you depressed? Why are you envious? Why are you discontent? I'm not denying that there might be some complex answers to each of these questions. But have you ever considered that you feel the way that you feel because you want to be king and you see that you fall short? Let's just take one of those for a moment. How about anxiety? Why are you anxious? Is it ever because you want to be in control and everything in your life is out of your control? You're trying feverishly to grasp for that control, to get everything back into its proper place, to get everything back into order, to get everything back to the way it's supposed to be. And you're anxious because you are not in control. And it doesn't matter how hard you try you never find the control that you're looking for. The Lord is declaring through His Word in these plagues that He is the sovereign one. No one else is sovereign. No one shares in His sovereignty. There is no other king or ruler or authority who can hold a candle to Him. He is in complete control. And God, making his sovereignty known, is a direct assault on whatever sovereignty you think that you have. God is saying, you are not the sovereign one here, and so we need to know His sovereignty. We need to know His rule. We must acknowledge without hesitation and without reservation that the Lord is king. Psalm 44, 4 says this, You are my king, O God. And now, you might be sitting here and saying this to yourself. I know all of this. I know that God is sovereign. Why are you pressing this? I already have this knowledge. Why do I need to hear a sermon about knowing God's sovereignty? You need to hear a sermon about knowing God's sovereignty because knowing God's sovereignty intellectually is never enough. If you truly know God's sovereignty, you will willingly submit to his sovereignty. And that is a great pitfall for someone to know God's sovereignty. Someone could even teach on God's sovereignty. Intellectually, they could know that God is sovereign, yet they could have never bowed the knee, yet they could have never submitted and put themselves underneath God's sovereignty. This is the crux of the matter. Not that you can sign a line saying that you know God is sovereign, but that you have submitted to a sovereignty, and so you live like God is sovereign. It's only then that you can say you truly know. And submitting to a sovereignty means submitting even when you don't understand it. even in the midst of difficulties and hardships, even in the midst of brokenness and hurt, even in the midst of those times when you feel like crying out, God, where are you? If you know and believe in God's sovereignty, then you will submit and trust His sovereignty. So how does God make His sovereignty known in this seventh plague? He does so in two ways. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful this morning. But number one, God's sovereignty is known in the outworking of his purposes. God's sovereignty is known in the outworking of his purposes. We begin here with the third and final cycle of the plagues. We can trace all of these cycles by following this pattern of how the Lord tells Moses to meet Pharaoh. So when the water turned to blood, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh early in the morning and meet him as he is going out to the water. That's Exodus 7:15. Then in the fourth plague, when there is a swarm of flies, the Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, again, early in the morning as he goes out to the water. That's chapter 8, verse 20. So now here in chapter 9, verse 13... The Lord again tells Moses to go out to Pharaoh early in the morning. Notice one slight difference here. He doesn't say as Pharaoh is going out to the water like he did the other two times. I think that's simply because now it goes without saying. This is the pattern that we are in. He's going to rise up early. He's going to meet Pharaoh as Pharaoh is going out to the water. As Pharaoh is going out to bask in the Nile as we have continued to talk about. And by rising early in the morning and meeting Pharaoh as he goes out to the water once more is a direct attack and a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty. He is going out to the water to glory in his sovereignty. Going out to proclaim his sovereignty over the Nile, over all of the land of Egypt. And he has the audacity to go out and say that there is no king greater than Pharaoh. That's what Pharaoh is saying. There's no king greater than himself. After the other six plagues that we've just seen, Pharaoh still believes that he is sovereign. The command of Pharaoh, or the command of Yahweh, again comes to Pharaoh and to the people. Send out. Send out my people says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And the Lord says, if you will not send them out, Pharaoh, I'm going to send upon you the full force, the full force of all of my plagues. So now we're escalating, we're intensifying this last cycle. And what it says here very literally is that the Lord is going to put the full force of his plagues on the very heart of Pharaoh. The Lord is taking aim and his direction is at Pharaoh's heart. He's going to shoot and he's going to land true right on Pharaoh's heart. And there's a reason why he does this. There's a reason why he says... My plagues are going to land full force, Pharaoh, on your heart and on all of your people. He says this because the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh's heart was the all-controlling factor in both history and society. Let me say it again. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh's heart was the all-controlling factor of everything that happened in both history and in society. And so what does Yahweh, what does the Lord do? He assaults Pharaoh's heart to demonstrate that the only God, the God of the Hebrews, is the sovereign one of the universe. He is the all-controlling one, not Pharaoh. But how many people have a Pharaoh complex? Truth be told, how many of us would like our hearts to be the all-controlling factor? How much easier life would be? Why are we told that this happens upon Pharaoh's heart? Because Pharaoh's heart had deceived him. His heart was heavy, wished to show that his heart was not the all-controlling factor of history and society. And so Yahweh says to Pharaoh, I'm going to send the full force of my plagues to convince you, Pharaoh, to convince you that your heart is not sovereign. But instead, you are going to know that there is none like me in all the earth. Isn't that what we read? in Verse 14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. There is no one sovereign like I am sovereign, says the Lord. And how difficult and unwilling we could be to accept such a statement. There is no one sovereign like the Lord in all of the earth. No one. Not even you. And then we get a glimpse of the Lord's mercy and long-suffering. How merciful has Yahweh been to Pharaoh? Notice what he says here. For I could have put out my hand and struck you. Pharaoh, if I wanted to put an end to you, I could have done it. I could have wiped you out. You and your people with all of this pestilence. I could have cut you off from the face of the earth. The Lord says, but I didn't. I was merciful. I was long-suffering. This idea has this sense that he has long nostrils in the sense of he's slow to anger. In the ancient times, they would see the Nose is this indication of if you were mad. If your nostrils would flare and get red. But the Lord shows that he is merciful. And his forbearance and kindness is meant to lead Pharaoh and his people to Repentance. But they did not repent, and so God says he's preserved Pharaoh and his people for another purpose. God makes... The declaration that he raised Pharaoh up. You see that there in verse 16. But for this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up. Literally, that's I have made you stand before me. Remember the last plague when the magicians had the boils upon their body and they couldn't even stand before Moses and Aaron. They couldn't even be in the presence of Moses and Aaron. Well, now the Lord says of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I am causing you. I am making you, according to my will, stand before me. You're going to stand there for a particular reason, and for a particular purpose. What is this purpose? It's to showcase the Lord's power and to proclaim the Lord's name in all of the earth. The Lord was using Pharaoh to display his greatness and his glory. Guess what, Pharaoh? It's not about you. It's not about your greatness. It's not about your glory. God is doing all of this to you, not so that you would be known as the sovereign king, but so that he would be known as the sovereign king. The Lord is doing this so that everyone would bow before him. And here is Yahweh saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, You are serving my purpose. I am not serving you, your purpose, your will, your desire. None of those are prevailing. My will, my desire, my purpose is happening and will happen. And there is nothing that you can do to stop it. Or thwart it or change it. Oh dear brother and sister... How antithetical this is to the way that many people think. Sometimes, perhaps even Christians can fall into this way of thinking. How many wrongly think that it is about God serving their purposes? It's about God doing what they want, about God meeting their expectations and doing the things the way that they want them to be done. Who is serving who? In your life, who is serving who? You expect God to serve you? And here's what I find fascinating about this. God does serve you, but he doesn't serve you in the way that you would expect. How does God serve you? God serves you by sending his own son into this world to take on human flesh to become a servant, and serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. God served you by killing his own son on the cross so that you might have life. God served you by putting all of your sin upon the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who there died in your place as the perfect sacrifice so that your sins would be taken away and so that you would be given the gift of eternal life. That is how God has served us in His own purposes. Not the way that we want, though, oftentimes. Not the way that we think we should be served. and how it goes to the fact that God knows what we really need. And this can be a truly terrifying thought to many because if God's sovereignty is known in the outworking of His purposes, that includes His purposes for salvation. This means that salvation does not depend on human desire or human effort. Rather, salvation depends solely on the purposes of the sovereign and holy God. We do not choose to pursue God. God first pursues us. So let's go back for a moment to those verses that I read this morning in our scripture reading. Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. Listen to them again. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion So then what? So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on who? But on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and now this is a quote from Exodus 9, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is sovereignly working out His purposes in the salvation of sinners. In saving people. And it might be difficult for us to understand, but see here how the negative aspect of the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart is designed and purposed to have a positive outcome. Pharaoh Your hardening was meant to show God's greatness. The judgment that fell upon Pharaoh set the stage to reveal the true and almighty God and who he really is. What is the positive? So that Yahweh's power and Yahweh's name would be proclaimed throughout the entire earth. God's purposes for Pharaoh and for the judgment that fall on Pharaoh and on his people would have worldwide implications so that everyone would know It's through him, through Pharaoh, that everyone is going to know just how powerful the Lord is and whose name is the only name to be praised. That's the idea behind proclaiming Yahweh's name. Not just that it's proclaimed, but that his name is to be praised. His name then is to be worshipped. His name is to be exalted above every other name. Power and a name. And it reminds me of an event that takes place at the beginning of the book of Acts. Where Peter and John are on trial for healing a crippled man and teaching in the temple. Look at this with me. This is astounding. Acts chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. God knows what he's doing in his word. And I think here we have a very good case in point. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. So now Peter and John have been taken. They've been brought before this council. They're on trial. Here's what these prosecutors begin to ask. They inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you Did you hear the parallels here between what these people say and with what God says in Exodus 9? By what power and by what name? By whose power and whose authority? Under whose sovereign rule are you doing such a thing? And what does the spirit-filled Peter say? By the power and name of Jesus Christ. He is the one who was crucified. He was the one who was buried in a tomb. He is the one that God raised again to life on the third day. All of this done according to his perfect purpose. And so that Christ would be exalted and would be known throughout the whole world. It became known to everyone that... Yahweh was the saving God. He is the God who saves, and it's made evident through the Exodus. And now, Peter says, though, this power and this name is finally and fully expressed through no one other than Jesus Christ himself. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Think about that, what he says. We must be saved by this name and this name alone. There is no other name. We must be saved, and you must be saved by the name of Jesus. That's it. No other name is going to save. What happens, though, back in Exodus, what happens after this purpose is made known that God's power and God's name is going to be made known throughout the earth. Verse 17. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Pharaoh's pride got in the way. Pharaoh was still all about exalting himself, lifting himself up. It was Pharaoh's pride. Proverbs 30, 32 says this. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself. Or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. Pharaoh had not put his hand on his mouth. He was exalting himself. Continued in his pride. Continued to insist that he was sovereign. He could handle it. He was in control. And so heavy hail was coming. Heavy hail was going to be rained down from the heavens upon Pharaoh, upon his people, upon their livestock, upon everything that was in the field. Everything and everywhere. And then the Lord gives a way of escape, doesn't he? Graciously. He says this basically, now is the time. Bring in your livestock, bring in your slaves, get them into a safe shelter. And they will be spared when the heavy hail falls. And what does it say? Verse 20, then whoever feared the word of the Lord. And the way that that is written, it's interesting because it's written in such a way as if to say, There were some who feared the Lord, but it was very few. (laughs) Then whoever feared the the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but... Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, or literally, whoever did not take the word of the Lord to heart. If they didn't take the word of the Lord to heart, they didn't listen, they didn't obey, they left their slaves and their livestock out in the field. And there is a great distinction between those who would fear the word of the Lord and listen to the word of the Lord and obey the word of the Lord and those who will not. I mean, you, you, you hear the warning here to escape judgment. And there's a parallel, I think, when we say there is judgment coming today. There is judgment coming, but there is a way out. It's through the power and the name of Jesus Christ will people hear the word of the Lord and respond? Or will they not take it to heart? We are those who are supposed to be fearing the word of the Lord and taking it to heart. Not like those who had hard and heavy hearts like Pharaoh and many, many of the Egyptians. And So God is working out his sovereignty through his own purposes. And number two, the second way that we know God's sovereignty is, we know God's sovereignty by what he possesses. God's sovereignty is known by what he possesses. God's sovereignty is known by what he possesses. Hail comes down. Upon man, upon beast, upon everything, thunder, hail, and fire, or we could think of that possibly as lightning, came down from heaven. And it's interesting, those descriptions, thunder, hail, and fire, are similar descriptions that were given when the Lord himself, the Lord God, appears. So, in a few chapters, chapter 19, we have a similar description of the Lord God descending upon Mount Sinai, and he does so in thunder and hail and fire. And this brings us to an understanding. Not only are these judgments coming from God, but God is also there present in the judgment. In fact, that word that's used for thunder could also be translated voice. This is as if God's voice is landing upon them in a deafening fashion, yet they are unwilling to listen and unwilling to hear. In fact, think about it. It's interesting. If you look at verse uh, 28, Pharaoh says, Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder. You can think about that. There's been enough of God's voice. I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm tired of it. It's ringing in my ears. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And so as hail rained down from heaven, struck down everything that was left out, whether man or beast or crop, the land of Egypt was ruined. But the land of Goshen, the land where God's people resided, the land where Israel lived, was spared. There's no doubt. This can only be the creator God who would do such a thing. And so Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and he confesses to them, doesn't he? But he qualifies his confession with a few words. Look at what it says here. Verse 27. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Hmm, that's interesting. This time? This isn't the first plague. This is the seventh plague if you're counting. Six other plagues have come before this. The Lord in verse 14 of our text said for this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people the full force of the plagues and now Pharaoh contrasts that by saying this time okay this time I've sinned this time I've gone too far this time I've done wrong the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong Pharaoh teaches us something in this verse. I think that is a good warning for us to hear. People can confess their sins. But confession of sin does not equal true repentance. Let me say that again. People can confess their sins. But confession of sin alone does not equal true repentance. Admitting that you have sinned is not the same as repentance. You can admit your sin. You can confess that the Lord is righteous like Pharaoh does here. You can acknowledge that you are wicked as Pharaoh does here. But that is not true repentance. Yet, how many people think... That merely by admitting their sin, they are good before a holy God. Have you admitted your sin but not repented? If you have admitted your sin and stopped, you haven't gone far enough. Admitting sin is not the fullness of heart change. A hypocrite can admit his sin with no fruit of lasting change that comes from true repentance. What is missing? If you admit your sin, but you do not repent, what's missing is godly grief. This is what 2 Corinthians says, verses uh, chapter 7, verse 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So there it is. you hear it? He says, I know rejoice that you were grieved, but this is what happened. You grieved, and then it led you to repentance. For what? For you felt godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death so what is it that godly grief does godly grief produces A change in you where you are seeking to turn from your sin, where you are seeking to kill your sin, where you are seeking to refrain from continuing in sin, where you are saying, I am no longer going to practice sin, and you begin to think again. Think again because you see that your sin is committed against a holy and righteous God. Think again because you see that your sin now is what separates you from this holy God think again because now you see i need a remedy for this separation i need reconciliation because of this separation i need christ because of this separation only he can reconcile me to god only through his death and resurrection can i know god and be brought to god again and you see the massive problem that is your sin and you cry out to God God be merciful to me a sinner worldly grief worldly grief that is not godly produces death because sin continues you may be grieved because you experience the consequences of your sin You may feel bad because your sin affects others, but it does not take into consideration that you have sinned against the holy God and brought about true, lasting change. In fact, do you remember when John the Baptist is baptizing there at the Jordan River and the Pharisees come out to him? What does he say to them? You brood of vipers, who told you to repent? And then what does he say? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What happens when you repent? There's fruit that comes from it, lasting fruit, heart change that comes from it. Because no fruit, no fruit, he says, is a tree that will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We see this with Pharaoh. Look at verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, what happened? He sinned yet again. He did not fear the Lord. Moses agrees to pray to the Lord for Pharaoh. But this time, notice what he says. When Pharaoh says, Plead for me. Pray for me. Moses says, I will. I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. That's a posture of prayer. When you stretch out your hands to the Lord, it's a posture of prayer. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail. Why? So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Here, you know God's sovereignty by what he possesses. And what does he possess? He possesses everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, says Psalm 24.1. If the Lord possesses all things, if the earth is the Lord's, then He has the right to do what he pleases with what he possesses. What we fail to realize is that if the earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it, then we are the Lord's and in fact, he has sovereignty over us. Sovereignty that means over everything that you love, everything that you hold dear, everything that you would clutch onto so tightly with clenched fist. The Lord says, I'm sovereign over that. Think about it today. Think about someone that you love. Someone that you hold dear. Someone that you know that maybe doesn't know the Lord. And it breaks your heart. It's not because they don't know the truth because you've told them the truth. God is sovereign over that person. And you try to hold on so tightly and clutch them and think that maybe you can make change their mind, make a difference, do something. But when you know that the Lord is sovereign, you're able to open up the clenched fist and say, God, I trust you as the sovereign Lord who is over everything. I trust you with this person. I trust you in faith that you are good and that you know what you are doing. I might not understand it. I might not know why. I might wrestle with it and struggle with it. But I know that if you possess everything, then you have the right to do what you please with what you possess. With this plague of hail, we are propelled forward into Scripture. In the Old Testament, the word hail is only used 29 times. 20 times it's referring to the hail here in Exodus Chapter nine, but there's other hail that falls. Joshua ten, hail falls on Israel's enemies. Joshua ten eleven, Isaiah twenty eight two, hail falls. Ezekiel thirty eight twenty two, hail falls again. In every occasion, every occasion, each of those verses. The hailstorm signifies the judgment of the sovereign God falling upon the enemies of his people. It's no surprise then what we read in Revelation 16. So would you turn there with me just as we close. Revelation 16. You notice the pattern as we go through these? If you've been here for multiple weeks, it seems like we're always ending in Revelation, doesn't it? <laughs> Revelation 16 though. Verse 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. The loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, "'It is done!' And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. Do you hear that? Do you hear that right there? What John is saying in the book of Revelation is similar to what Moses had said to Pharaoh. You're going to see a great hailstorm such as Egypt has never seen in all of its time, in all of its history. Now here, John echoes that and says, you're going to see this great plague that's never been seen since man was on the earth. Verse 19, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God For the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The judgment that fell upon Egypt and Pharaoh was merely a foretaste of the judgment that falls upon mankind at the end. That judgment will be much more severe and much worse. How bad will it be? The heaviest hailstone ever recorded in our history was found in India and it was four pounds. Here are hailstones that are falling from heaven that are a hundred pounds. The judgment will be more severe, much worse, but in both instances, the enemies of Yahweh continued in their rebellion and in their sin. They did not repent They remained hard-hearted or they blasphemed God. And so what do we need to know? We need to know the power and the name of the Lord now. The name of the Lord that saves now. Let his word go forth Let us know the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Let us submit our lives to him as those who fear his word, as those who have repented of their sin. And let us with urgency, with urgency, make his power and his name known throughout all of the earth so that others might be delivered from such an end as this. Let's pray. Father, your word is holy. And it's true. And so give us ears to hear and accept and receive and learn what you have said to us this morning. Help us to submit to your sovereignty. Help us to trust that you are sovereign. Help us to open up our clenched fists, whatever right now we are holding on to so tightly. Whatever it is we're anxious about, worried about, afraid, resentful of, bitter of, discontent. Or whatever it is that we're holding on to. Maybe open our hands before the sovereign God, before you. Let us acknowledge that we are not sovereign, but that you are sovereign. That you are perfect. And that you are good. I pray that you would work in people's hearts and lives here this morning that might not know you. That they would have heard the power of Jesus Christ. They would have heard the name of Jesus Christ and all that entails as the only one who can save them. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. So would they put their faith and their trust in Him and would they repent of their sin today? We pray in Jesus' name.